Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Awesome. Y'all, give it up for that choreographed dance we just did right there. That was great. (laughs) Welcome to Hope Brooklyn, and welcome to fall. Can I get a shout out for fall? Yes, yes, I know. Technically, it's not quite fall, but I am wearing plaid, and I did have my PSL this morning, so basically, PTL for PSL, or for anyone who's not basic, praise the Lord for pumpkin spice lattes, all right? Um, Welcome to Hope Brooklyn, if it's your first time, thanks so much for joining us. We are a relatively new community of faith that believes no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Today, for fall kickoff, we're jumping into a new series that we are titling Sacraments, that is gonna take us through the fall. Uh, Some of you, depending on your uh, religious history or tradition, you might already know that word. Sacraments comes from the Catholic tradition. And it's this idea at its simplest, and hopefully I'm not butchering it, it's the idea that God communicates to us through creation. God communicates to us through all sorts of ways. And the Catholic Church, they, they have seven main sacraments. Sacraments like the Lord's Supper, baptism, um, like uh, the institution of marriage, um, like penance. So if you, if you make mistakes, you do acts of penance. These are ways that God is communicating himself, his name, his nature to people. The Protestants, we took it and we cut that down to two. Um, we just said Lord's Supper and baptism. But I wonder if I may be so bold, and I pray I'm not being presumptuous, I wonder if both of us are kind of selling God short. That's kind of the, the, the contention of the series. That if God, when we say God, what we mean is the ground of being. We don't mean, I think often we, we don't, we, we're not clear in our heads what we're referring to when we say God. We don't mean some supernatural agent set over and against other agents. We mean the ground of being itself. Or as we read in one of um, Paul's letters, in whom we live and move and have our being. The wellspring of being who is also called love. At his core, who is, who is life? Who gives life? God, who is love, who is full sacrificial commitment. So if, if that's what we're talking about, and God out of this love creates a cosmos that emerges from love, that is headed toward love, well then couldn't theoretically that God communicate through all sorts of ways, all sorts of places. I think he could, provided that there is a consistent logic in it, that there's a pattern and you see it all throughout the story of when God enters into history with his people, Israel, or he enters into history through the person of Jesus. And the logic, the pattern, which always is present when you're communicating with God is this, you're gonna die, (laughs) going to kill you, some part of you. There will be death to come face to face with the ground of being, with love himself, is to recognize that we are mutinous, that we have been cut off from love, that there is a fundamental brokenness in us. There will be death, but, but the hope on the other side of death and that encounter is we're going to be resurrected that there will be a form of life that emerges out of that, which is better than anything we could have called life now. And so what we're gonna look at over these next couple weeks are various relationships, various uh, seasons of life, 
uh, various items and sort of asking how are they a sacrament? How does God communicate himself to us through them such that they kill us and give us life? And the first one, because as you heard in our musical chairs right there, there's lots of ways to get connected right now. Lots of ways to get involved. And so what I want to look at today is the sacrament of community. Community. That in God's vision of community, there is death, but there is also life. And I want to say, because we are a church where you don't have to believe to belong, so you might be here and you know, you're not sure with this whole God thing, wherever you are, I would still make the contention that what our society needs right now is God's vision of community. And hopefully I will explain why at the end of this. So first, let's, let's state the problem. I really don't need to do too much. We walk outside these doors and we feel it in the air. There was, a, uh, there was an op-ed written by David Brooks for the New York Times back in the spring, this past spring. And he went around to different universities around the country and he basically just asked questions. He just polled students. And, and the, the central idea, the central question he wanted to ask is, how do you see the world? How do these students see their worlds right now? Uh, bleakly is the answer. <laughs> very, very bleakly. And before we rush to judgment, um, he, he points out, we have to understand that these students' lived experience includes a lot. It, it includes the Iraq War. When they were first coming into consciousness of themselves and their, and their worlds, it included the Iraq War. It included the financial crisis of 08. Uh, it, it included sort of the dissemination of videos, the vanity, bullying, shaming culture of social media and how that's evolved. It included the fall and the subsequent distrust of some of our society's most cherished icons like Hollywood, like Silicon Valley. And their lived experience has included the polar opposite meanings of uh, America's last two presidents. They've seen a lot. Consequently, they have a very cynical view of large institutions. They prefer, and this might be many of you in the room, prefer grassroots, decentralized movements. Interestingly, at one university, Brooks uh, interviewed 30 students from 30 different countries. And he asked them, how many of you think that the, the leaders of your country, the politicians of your country are doing a good job and you trust them? Only one out of 30 raised their hands. One out of 30. If you're curious who it was, it was Germany. So uh, well done, Chancellor Merkel. Keep it up, I guess. You find that students are, are intrinsically, and, and the culture of our times is intrinsically cynical about everything. Everything is flawed, everything is corrupted, or will become corrupted in time. You just got to give it time. And then since it is an op-ed, Brooks, he's, he's stating, you know, what his findings, his empirical data, and then he throws in his two cents at the end. Obviously, he's trying to make a little bit of a point. And this is how he ends his article. He goes, I was also struck by pervasive but subtle hunger for a change in the emotional tenor of life. We're more connected, but we're more apart, one student lamented. Again and again, students expressed a hunger for social and emotional bonding, for a shift from guilt and accusation toward empathy. How do you create relationship, one student asked. That may be the longing that undergirds all the others. How do you create relationship? Now, I read this article at the same time I read another article from the New York Times. 
And this other article found that there is a 25% increase in suicides over the last 20 years. And this increase is across most ethnic and age groups, which shows that it can't be limited to one particular group of people. It's societal. And they point out this 25% increase does not include failed attempts of suicides, which is astronomically higher. This also is coupled with the steep rise of mental health professionals. There's more mental health professionals than ever before. There's more prescriptions of antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds than ever before. And yet still, we're seeing this crisis of meaninglessness. In fact, the USDA even said that we are experiencing an epidemic of loneliness. That's the pressing epidemic of our time, is loneliness. This article had a similar theory. There's a weaker sense of belonging, greater detachment from one another. They actually said that in America right now uh, is the, the, the least likely uh, um, time. We are far less likely to know our neighbors, the family unit is shrinking, and faith communities are declining. And so again, that student, I hear his or her words saying, we're more connected than ever and we're more apart than ever. And you can throw in whatever word you want for connected. We're more connected, we're more aware, socially aware. We're more knowledgeable, we're more autonomous, we're more empowered than ever. And we're more apart than ever. Why is this happening? And I wanna make the claim, and um, this is being made in several books going around right now, that the reason why it is, is because we've succeeded. I know, that seems a little backwards. I wanna say that the Western project that was begun in the Enlightenment, the project shorthand is liberalism, and when I say liberalism, I don't mean politically liberals versus political conservatives. When I say liberalism, I mean the game by which both political liberals and political conservatives are both playing. Liberalism is this philosophy that seeks to um, say that the self is autonomous, the self is impenetrable, and the self, uh, no one can speak into the self's conception of their identity. And I wanna say that our entire American project, our entire Western project has been built off of this premise, the idea of throwing off the moorings of monarchy and creating a country where each private citizen can be their own king or queen. And I wanna say we're getting pretty darn close to the final goal. We've done it, we've succeeded. We are next to the close or final development of that ideal. And you see it manifested in all sorts of places. You see it through the power, the knowledge, and the connectivity of our technologies. The way they've empowered us, they've deified us. Interestingly, I was reading another book recently called Selfie, which traces the rise of the selfie generation. Um, and and when this, if you're a tech person, you probably already know this. I didn't. When sort of the, the, the advent of personal computing arose in the 60s in sort of the Palo Alto, um, California area, there was a countercultural magazine called the Whole Earth Catalog. I don't know if you've heard of the Whole Earth Catalog. And, um, and in fact, this Whole Earth Catalog was, was happening in tandem with the rise in the burgeoning development of personal computing and the idea of the internet. Steve Jobs uh, actually called it one of his Bibles, the Whole Earth Catalog. Steve Jobs. And the mission statement of the whole earth catalog was this, we are as gods and we might as well get good at it. We are as gods 
and we might as well get good at it. And that is influence the rise of our technologies. You see this idea of this rampant individualism, this high expressive individualism. You see it in our philosophy, which we throw around all the time. And maybe we even say it and believe it. This, you hear it of you do you, right? Just yesterday, I heard it in two separate instances. I don't know if I heard it because I knew I was about to preach on it, but we say it all the time. You do you, which means what? Well, you're gonna do you and I'm gonna do me. And so long as us doing our separate selves doesn't uh, cause harm to each other, then we're good of truth and of purpose. You see that philosophy of do not, I cannot tell you what is most true for you and you cannot tell me what is most true for me. You see it in this phrase um, that we hear of how a culture of entitlement, right? And usually when we say that phrase, a culture of entitlement, it has some pejorative connotation, but try to eliminate that and just say it honestly, neutrally. A culture of entitlement. Well, doesn't that make sense? If this entire project is premised off the idea of the power of the individual, the autonomy of the individual, that each person can be their own king or queen. Doesn't that make sense that they would feel entitled, right? Everything we've been working toward is toward that end. So the more we empower the individual, the further apart we drift. That's what we've seen. But where does individualism lead? I think it has a pretty haunting end. And I think no one captures the individualistic spirit better than G.K. Chesterton. And he writes this, and he's a, he's a Brit writing in the early 1900s, but this is what he says about the individualistic motto. And I sort of uh, reworded the, the titles to make sense for our, our context. But he goes, the real human knows that he has a touch of the beast, a touch of the devil, a touch of the saint, a touch of the citizen. Nay, the really real human knows that he has a touch of the madman. But the American human's world is quite simple and solid, just as the lunatic is quite sure he is sane. American humans and lunatics have no doubts about themselves. But then, when this kindly world all around the American human has been blackened out like a lie, when friends fade into ghosts and the foundations of the world fail, then when the American human, believing in nothing and in no man, is alone in his own nightmare, then the great individualistic motto shall be written over him in avenging irony. The stars will be only dots in the darkness of his own brain. His mother's face will be only a sketch from his own insane pencil on the walls of his cell. But over his cell shall be written with dreadful truth, he believes in himself. He believes in himself. See, friends, I want to make the, the case today that individuality leads to insanity. But community leads to true reality. How do you create relationship, we're all asking. Well, it's really hard because I've created a self that's impenetrable that doesn't allow you in to shape me, to form me, just as you've created a self that doesn't allow me in to shape you or form you. I got this from uh, another book by Patrick Deneen, but basically our current conception of, of our society right now is that we are all wholes apart, right? Each of you is a standalone autonomous whole 
and um, community in that sense is we have a bunch of holes aggregated here in this space. That's our idea. You determine what's most real and most true for you. But I wanna say that the biblical vision, God's vision of community that will lead us to true reality and not insanity is when we view ourselves not as holes apart, but as parts of a whole. Parts of a whole. And I, I realize that this is a difference between Western and Eastern views. Uh, another interesting thing I learned um, when children from the East, when they are shown a picture at age six and seven, there was a, a test of, of like a goldfish in a, in a bowl. And they track the eyes to see where their eyes go. Children from the East look all across the entire picture. They look at the entire context. Children from the West at age six or seven, when they're shown that same picture, they immediately zero in on the fish. They find the subject. Who's the hero of the story? Right? And even when they're asked to describe what's going on in the picture, children from the East will describe, um, usually they'll start with the context, the entire situation. Children from the West will usually start by describing the fish. The fish is the first sentence. We have a society in which you and I are holes apart, but I want to contend that what God is trying to get us to understand is that we are parts of a whole. Real community is where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, where I am attaching myself to the selves of my peers and therefore our community is greater than any single one of us. I love the way Donald Miller puts it. Yeah, I'm going into the archives, pulling out Donald Miller. If you don't know who that is, that's fine. But he goes in one of his books, he says, I am a tree and a story about a forest. But God promises me the story about the forest is much better than the story about the tree. All of us right now feel like the main characters in the world's greatest story being written. But we're simply trees and a story about a forest. And if we're willing to have the courage, God says the story about the forest is much, much better than the story about a single tree. And therefore, if that's the case, when we enter into this forest, when we enter into this community, we realize we exist to serve the community. The community does not exist to serve us. If we're holes apart and we enter into a space, we're all like little vacuum cleaners, right? Because we exist in a space to be served for it. That's what it makes sense to be a whole. I, I come, and even you see that in certain churches. I dare say many of us probably still come to church sometimes thinking, what am I getting out of this? How is this gonna feed me? And that's okay, there is definitely an element of we exist in community because it does foster us, it does cultivate our spirits. But if we all exist for that reason, we're just vacuum cleaners sucking things up. Or if we're parts of a whole, we come to the community. The community doesn't serve us, we serve the community and something more incredible is birthed out of that than, than just the sum of its parts. But this type of community is only possible, friends, if I'm willing to die to my own values. If I'm willing to die to my own autonomy, willing to die to my own limited sense of truth and trust that the vision of life as community is bigger than me. That I don't have to protect myself because all are looking after one another. All are pursuing the same goal and we either all get there or none of us do. And trust that this will lead me in the right direction toward life, love, wholeness, peace, all the things we most want. And God's like, well, that's precisely the type of community I'm creating. 
And there are lots of places we could turn to see that. I just want to turn to one. I want to turn to the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, because I think Ephesians, better than any other letter, uh, provides an articulation for the church's purpose and place in the world. And, and just in case, if, if you're here and you're unfamiliar with like church language and all that, that's totally awesome. Um, church, unfortunately, has had a, a bad evolution as a word, because when we say church in the present day, often what do we think? We think the building, right? I'm going to church. I'm going to a place. But that is not at all what the Greek word church means. Uh, the, the, the word in Greek for church is ekklesia, and it has this connotation of a town hall meeting, of people, people who come together with a common interest, their town, with a, to decide on a common purpose, a common vision, to decide on what's the best direction, because the town is greater than the sum of the individual members who make it up. That's what God's getting at when he says a church. People coming together to be in community and to live in a space together. So I wanna go through a text in Ephesians chapter four. We're gonna go a little bit by a little bit today. Um, so follow along. We're in Ephesians four uh, and it starts like this. Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What's he saying? Well, he's saying that God has a goal. And the goal of God is simple. It is unity. It is wholeness. The goal of God is unity. He says, be completely humble, gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. And that makes sense. Again, if God is the wellspring of being, if God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being, then, then the goal of God is to create a cosmos that is perfectly united with love. Where, where the two are not the same. And, and this is a difference between Christianity and pantheism. Pantheism says that uh, nature is God. We're not saying that. We're saying God created nature. God created us. But at its best, as two distinct entities, they are both perfectly yielded to one another and therefore they're perfectly united. Paul says, make every effort. And, and, and the original construction would be running like sprinting, hastening toward this. Don't delay, charge forward toward unity. And when we say unity, it's important we realize we're not talking about um, sameness. Unity is not to be all the same. Unity is to be one, oneness. It's the idea that I know you so deeply, so deeply, and you know me so deeply. It's as if we're the same person. We're not but it almost like we finish each other's sentences. We know what makes us laugh and cry. We know how to read one another. That's unity. And we know this is the goal because we see Jesus. We see Jesus who as he lives is love in the flesh, is love walking perfectly yielded to the will of the Father. So the goal of God is unity, one whole. Now, how do we get there? 
The text goes on. It says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, there's a lot of theological stuff in there, but I just want to pull back on a general level because I think it's astounding what's going on. The goal of God is unity. But how does God reach his goal? The method he uses is diversity. Did you catch that? In this passage, we're told God gives various roles. He gives prophets and evangelists and teachers. He gives various roles. In other passages, in other books, um, it's actually specific gifts. Like people are given gifts of encouragement and gifts of compassion and gifts of service and gifts of healing. But it's still the same, the same concept. The goal is unity and the way God is attempting to reach this is diversity. Which means we cannot reach the full measure of who God is through homogeneity. Can't do it. We're gonna be limited and reduced vision of God. We reach it through diversity, diversity of culture, diversity of economy, diversity of politics, diversity of race, gender, worldview. Diversity is God's means toward unity. And he uses the language of a body, right? He describes the church, the community as a body, the one body that has a singular purpose, right? Like if my arm says, hey, I'm gonna start doing my own thing. And my leg says, I'm gonna start doing my own thing. I'm gonna look very funny up here. I don't know what's gonna happen. It's gonna start doing craziness. But the one body has different members, diverse members who have different roles, but they are all um, pursuing the same idea, which is to keep me alive. (laughs) The idea is that we are not wholes apart. We are parts of a whole. We're not holes apart with our own vision, our own truth, our own autonomy. We are parts of a body. And the more we remain together and understand the fullness of our stories and who we are and the fullness of one another's stories, somehow in this, we're gonna grow into the full measure of the maturity of God. And I think it's often, at least in this day and age, that diversity in some form we feel like it's impenetrable, right? We feel like it's an impasse. Well, that just goes to show that our discourse has utterly failed us because we view ourselves as holes apart. We view ourselves saying, once you just get my vision, then we'll be good instead of parts of a whole. But diversity does not mean division. Diversity does not inherently mean we're divided. Interestingly, the devil means division. So the Greek word for devil, I'm giving you a lot of Greek today, I'm sorry. Um, The Greek word for devil is diabolos, right? El diablo. It's a compound word. It's dia, which means through, and balo, which means to cast. So the devil, the diabolos, is one who cuts through something. The one who divides. The devil means division. Diversity doesn't mean division. Difference of opinion, of approach, of vision does not mean, necessarily mean division but it's actually necessary, as Nathan set up here, the goal is that we end up at the table together to reach unity. We need one another. And not, I need you to become like me, but I need you to be fully you and you need me to be fully me. And somehow, if we remain in relationship long enough, 
We're going to discover something brand new, something better, something more than just who we are as separate people. Which this also means, and I don't know if you saw it in the passage, that because we're not there yet, God's community is in a process of becoming. We're in a process of becoming. Paul writes, until we reach the full measure, which is to say, I don't have full truth and neither do you. I don't have full knowledge and I don't have full faith. Contra the American vision that says, if you wanna understand truth, if you wanna understand yourself, the only place you can look is within. We'd say, no, that's not true. We'd say we actually have to look without. We have to look in relationship. That perhaps uh, I need you and you need me to build one another's faith, to actually get closer to the full measure, the maturity of truth. The students from, from Brooks's article, they don't know how to build relationship because the tenor of the students was what? To deconstruct and tear down. We're all really good deconstructionists. But to deconstruct is to look at something and say, I can immediately see what's wrong with it. And, and just so you know, deconstruction is not a bad thing, I don't think. To, to look at something and say, hey, I can see the faults. We need that. The issue is the, the motivation behind it. We look at something, I can see the faults, we need to tear this up. Not because I love that something, not because I'm committed to its development. I do it because I'm right. I have truth. And if we could just tear that down and build it to look like me, then we'd be getting somewhere. How many of us would look at something, a situation, a relationship, a friend, and say, hey, here's some faults, here's some things we can work on, but because, and still acknowledge humbly, but I don't have full truth. So I'm in this with you. We're walking this out together. I think that, I dare say that would change the humility by which we speak in those situations. How many would say, I actually don't know the full truth without you teaching me? And, and it's not, I need you to help me reach my goal, right? Which is, many of us, we view community that way. I join community because I need something from you. It's, I need you because I actually don't know where I'm going. <laughs> I actually don't know where I'm headed. And somehow, the community is the goal. It's not, I need community for my happiness. It's, Community is the mechanism that teaches me what happiness is. I don't even know what it means to be happy yet. Perhaps we'll discover that in community. Does that make sense? It's a little bit of a nuance. It's saying that I actually don't know what true life is, what true joy is, what true peace is, what, what true love is apart from a community. And in this space, perhaps over time, we'll start to learn what all those things mean. I don't need it because it gives me those things. I need it because it's only in that space that I discover what those things are. Or I like the way from an On Being podcast, uh, it, was, it was stated, perhaps community is the word for what we will discover if we honestly and radically let each other into our lives. Or perhaps it's something else in a language we have yet to uncover. Perhaps community is what we'll discover as we step into those spaces. Well, then how do we even begin to do that? If the goal of God is unity and the means toward that is diversity, how do we even begin 
to take those steps because we're more apart than ever, as it's been stated. How do we create relationship and pursue this community if it's not natural for us to trust one another and to be vulnerable with one another and allow people to shape us? Well, Paul gives us the answer. In verse two, what does he say? He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. AKA, it's gonna be death. (laughs) It's gonna kill you. Humility. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, it's not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less because your thoughts are consumed with other people, other situations. It's, it's why we can't say you do you anymore. We can't do that because humility would say, you don't have full truth, nor do I. But together, we might be able to get closer to the full truth. Somehow, we're better together. Somehow, I'm more myself when I'm in this community than when I'm just myself. Somehow, you're not fully you apart from this body being created, moving toward unity. So you better believe the humility it takes to make those concessions the, the humility it takes to confess those things, that's gonna kill you. That's gonna rid you of some of your autonomy. It's gonna rid you of some of your power. It's gonna kill you. There's death in humility. Be humble and gentle. In the Greek, uh, the best way to define gentleness, it's a willingness to waive one's rights that come from seeking the common good. I've started to learn this lesson of gentleness, of waiving one's rights for the common good, in marriage, when Anna and I are in a fight, how do we reconcile? What do we do? Who's right? Who's wrong? Well, empirically, no, it's not that she's always right. I heard that. <laughs> empirically, we don't know, right? It's complex. It's convoluted. If we really wanted to say, if the basis of our relationship with who's right and who's wrong, then maybe we could peel back the layers and understand what happened. But if we want to be honest, perhaps I was the one in this instance who said an unkind word. But I said an unkind word because something was triggered in me based on something she said. And the reason why it was triggered in me is because I developed that trigger as a child from my parents. And the reason why I developed that is because they developed something from their parents. So if we really want to talk about full culpability, we got to look back generations, right? To really understand empirically who's right and who's wrong. We're going to get nowhere. If the common ground is that, we will stay apart forever. But if our common ground is love, and when I say love, I I just want to make sure we understand, the Greek word for love is agape, which means sacrificial commitment. In our current culture, love means a fearful tolerance, I think. To I love you means I'm going to be for the good parts of you and you're going to be for the good parts of me, but I'm not going to step on toes. I'm kind of afraid to to step in and say, hey, these actions right here are harming you, right? But when I say love, when God says love, we mean sacrificial commitment to one another, dying to yourself for the sake of the others flourishing. And if that's our common ground, then we will swallow our pride for the sake of reconciling. You better believe there's a death in that. Be humble, be gentle, be patient. Literally the word for patience translated as long temper. (laughs) Have a long temper. And to have a temper means you're going to be wronged by people. When your temper set off, it's because you've been offended. You've been insulted. 
They're saying dumb, ignorant things. And you are to speak up, but when is the question? And for what purpose? And this starts with a change in vision. Because the person before you and all their quirks and all their vulgarities and offensiveness is actually necessary for you to reach full maturity and unity. So do you see the gift of who they are before you see how they've offended you? Do you see the gift of who they are before you see how they've offended you? I learned this lesson in seminary. I had no theological background or training. My theological background was Donald Miller and a little Tim Keller probably. So I showed up in seminary and it took me a couple months to realize I was doing something wrong. So we'd go and we'd read our passages. We'd read different theologians. We'd show up and we'd discuss them. And I'd be super excited. I'm like, oh, I got this great stuff I wanted to talk about. And the conversation would always go a different way. And I'd be super confused, like what's going on? And then I realized what the issue was. When people, or when, when other students who did have training in, in English and history, when they were doing the readings, they were reading uh, critically. A critical reading, that's what you're taught. They were finding the holes in the argument, the gaps in the argument. And they were bringing that in and discussing that. Me, because I had not been trained, I was reading these theologians, these pastors, and I wasn't agreeing with everything they were saying, but what my mind was going to was the stuff I liked, the common ground. It's like, oh yeah, I'm not sure about this, but this right here, this was really cool. This made me think about grace in a new way. That's what I wanted to talk about, Right? And then I learned how to be a critical reader and I got through seminary, but it also destroyed me because God would say, I was right in this. Like empirically, I am right in this. God would say that we cannot build first with criticism. We cannot build first with deconstruction. First, we have to love the other person. First, we have to see them as necessary for our development, for our unity. That opens up space for truth-telling when the truth isn't fully complete. Many of us in this day and age speak truth, not because we love the other person or we're committed to their development. We speak truth because we think we got it right, right? The problem is you, it's out there. And if you would fall in line with my vision of truth, then we'd get it. But Paul says, bear with one another in love. Bear with one another in sacrificial commitment. Friends, if you don't love someone, if you're not sacrificially committed to their development, if you can't be humble, gentle, and patient with them, then keep your mouth shut because you're not helping anything. We're not building anything. We're just creating more wedges and further division. In fact, in the Greek sense of the word, you're playing the devil. <laughs> you're dividing but if you do love someone, if you are committed to their development and their maturity as they're committed to yours, then you'll know in the right time with humility and gentleness, with patience to speak into their lives and they will be able to receive it because they know that you are committed to them. You're committed to them. So you better believe there's death in long temper in patience, bearing with sacrificial commitment. And then says Paul, do all these things, heading toward unity. The goal is diversity. Here the, with, through humility and gentleness and patience and love. This is how we're gonna attempt to get there in a process of becoming. Do all these things. And Paul says, then we will no longer be infants. 
tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. One final dig by Paul. He says, if we do all these things, then we'll no longer be infants. It's in the plural form. So to be individuals is to be immature and an infant. But if we grow up into the mature body, singular, of him who is the head, if we continue to put on humility and gentleness and patience and love, seeing one another as necessary for reaching unity, then you know what we're going to find? We're going to find that our community has become Jesus, has become love in the flesh. Die to the idea that you have full truth on your own. Die to the idea that you don't need others to be a mature human. Die and allow humility, gentleness, and patience to grow inside of you. Allow the idea that the whole is more than some of its parts to resurrect inside you. Allow the idea that diversity in every way allows the community to grow into unity and maturity of the knowledge of the creator who is love. Allow the idea that you're not fully you without them as they're not fully them without you to grow inside of you. And you know what you'll discover? You'll discover that this entity, this community, which has taken time and many iterations has become Jesus, has become love in the flesh. Pursue this community and you'll find God. And if you're here and you're not a follower of God, I still say that to you. Pursue this type of community, this type of community, as painful as you know it's going to be. And at the end of that road or, or along the way, you're going to find the spirit of love there. You're going to find the spirit of God. You're going to find Jesus, that perfect unity. And the Catholics do have a, a sacrament for this. They call it confession. It's the idea that we come, we come to the priest. And we confess what's going on. We open up our very selves and we allow the priest to speak in to our lives. But I wonder if, if, as 1 Peter says, that we're the priesthood of all believers, that if all of us have the fullness of the spirit within us, then we can just confess to one another. That's what community becomes. It becomes a process by which we come to one another and we open up what's fully going on. And then they open up what's fully going on. And in this and this realization that we are powerless over our own lives, that we need God and we find God in this community, in this exchange, then we find Jesus. And just so you know, and you probably already know this, not all churches are this type of community, which makes things confusing. I still remember one time, Anna and I, um, we went to an NA meeting with a friend who's a pastor. And I still contend that the gospel was more alive there than I have ever experienced it. The hugs we received, the life that was present, the spirit of acceptance and humility, because all we're gathering in this meeting saying, we're powerless over our own lives. We need a higher power to, to speak to us and we need one another to keep each other accountable. That is the gospel's form of community. And you saw it just absolutely radiating out. The very next morning, Anna and I went to a church, which was ironic that this happened, but I also kid you not, it was one of the coldest experiences we've ever had in a church. 
I think that was God's way of saying that just because they throw my name around does not mean that I'm present with them. You can sense the spirit of what's going on. And then when that happens, Paul ends this by saying, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth and building itself up in love. So the body is joined and knit together by every ligament. These smaller communities that help us reach the unity and maturity. And at Hope Brooklyn, we call these communities tables. Tables are our spaces where we attempt to put this type of community in practice, to die to ourselves, to create a space of vulnerability, to create a space of intimacy, to create a space of acceptance and trust and recognize that the whole, perhaps if we all commit to this, that the whole is bigger and better than the sum of its parts, that perhaps the story of the tree is better than the story, or the story of the forest is better than the story of the tree. And so I wanna invite, if you're leading a table this year, would you stand please, right where you are, stand. I wanna commission you today. The task that you are stepping into is not just difficult, it's impossible. It is impossible. Why? Because you don't have full truth. You don't have full knowledge. You don't have full faith. But what you do have are open hands. Open hands that say, perhaps this type of space that we're gonna open up, this type of space we're gonna create, pursuing commitment, pursuing vulnerability, pursuing intimacy, pursuing this idea that we are parts of a whole, perhaps in this space, God will be discovered. So I want you to know that I love you, I'm super proud of you, and recognize that what you're doing can't be done unless you abide in the Lord. So abide, throw yourself into them over and over. Do not lose heart and we're with you. The rest of us, will you stand please? And I wanna ask you to do something that might feel sentimental and kitschy, but I think it can be really important. I'm gonna ask you to grab hands with the people beside you. And if you have to stretch across the rows, stretch across the rows. This is the vision. You are not you. You don't know who you are without the people whose hands you're holding. The story of this is far better than the story about me or about you. And if we will step into this, as awkward as it feels, and I know it does feel awkward because we're not conditioned to do these types of things. But if we will step into this, if we will sacrifice ourselves for one another, if we will show up and say, not how does Hope Brooklyn serve me, but how can I serve my brothers and sisters here? How can I serve those who don't know? How can I be committed to their development? If we'll do that, then I promise you, in that process of the body growing up, we're gonna find Jesus. We're gonna find God. 
Pray with me. Lord, we can do nothing without you. And you say that apart from you, we can do nothing. You have made us for yourselves and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And the mechanism for this is the body, is community. So Lord, I pray for tables this year. I pray for an influx of people who want to try it out, who want to attempt a different way of living, a way that will give up some of their power and some of their autonomy, a way that will be a little humbler, but trusting that they will find you in this space, find you in community. I pray for table leaders, Lord. I pray that they would feel totally inadequate to the job before them. And in that inadequacy, it would not turn into fear, but instead it would turn into dependence and surrender to you. Lord, we're here. Our hands, we're holding. We want to grow into him who is the head. We want Jesus to be formed in this space. We want God to take on flesh again, to be so palpable and so present. So do that, Lord. Do that, Jesus. Be near to us. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.